0: Hi, this is David Douglas, Managing Director of EBO at the Digital Agency. EBO are the proud sponsors this year of Radio Molly and Molly's Digital Program.
1: Every Life is Many Days, a podcast about James Joyce and his family in the contemporary novel. I'm Anne Fogarty from the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. As director of the UCD James Joyce Research Center, it is my pleasure to collaborate with Molly on this series of podcasts exploring how James Joyce and his family have been represented in the contemporary novel. 2022 marks the centenary of the publication of Ulysses on the 2nd of February 1922 by Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Inevitably, much attention will centre on Ulysses this year. But the centenary also provides an opportunity to reconsider Joyce's legacy and to think about how we view him both as a person and as a literary icon. The many gaps between Joyce the man and Joyce the writer have in recent years been movingly explored in a number of novels that think about his life in very different ways. This series features the work of five authors who have woven Joyce and his family into their novels. Anna Voss, Nuala O'Connor, Frank McGuinness, Mary Costello and Mary Morrissey. In conversation with them, we will discuss many aspects of Joyce's influence on the modern novel. We'll examine the much mythologized, but often unremembered aspects of the lives of his partner, Nora Barnacle, and Lucia Joyce and Georgia Joyce, Joyce's son and daughter. These podcasts explore why Joyce continues to act as such a lively source of inspiration for contemporary fiction writers. They also examine why so many writers feel the imperative to reinvent him, and at the same time to query aspects of his biography. These novels re-engage with Joyce, but they also encourage us to see him differently and from unexpected angles. You're listening to every Life is Many Days, a podcast about James Joyce and his family in the contemporary novel. It is a pleasure to introduce our guest this afternoon, Nuala O'Connor. Nuala is here to talk to us about her acclaimed 2021 novel, Nora, published in Ireland by New Ireland. Nuala O'Connor is a prolific and award-winning author who has written across the genres and she has published novels, short story collections and volumes of poetry. She's worked as an arts administrator and translator and frequently teaches creative writing. Her novels include You, from 2010, The Closet of Savage Mementos, published in 2014, Miss Emily, which appeared in 2015, and Becoming Belle, from 2018. Her short story collections include Nude and Joyride to Jupiter, which appeared in 2009 and 2017, respectively. Nuala, welcome and congratulations on the achievement of your novel, Nora, uh, which we'll be delving into. Uh, It, of course, has won many accolades and has won over um, a very enthusiastic readership, I know. Um, But of course, foremost uh, amongst the, the accolades is being chosen as the One Dublin, One Book title for 2022. So I'd like to begin by just approaching the, the, the novel generally. Can you give a short description of the, the novel for those who may not know about it yet? So the
0: novel is Nora's story, Nora's point of view, um, her life with James Joyce. And uh, the subtitle is a love story. I didn't choose the subtitle. My publishers did. But when you look at the whole Joyce um, piece and you see the love that was between Nora, Giorgio, Lucia and Joyce, uh, Love Story seems like an appropriate title for it. So it follows Nora from when she first meets Joyce in June 1904 to her death in Zurich in 1951. So uh, it's a good few years that I set myself the task to cover. um, And I wanted the reader to see that great art isn't made in isolation. It's made with supports. And in James Joyce's case, one of his main supports
1: was Nora Barnacle. I'd like to start off with to invite you to read from Nora. Yeah, so I'll read the first chapter. And this is the
0: first day they walked out together. My chapters are very short. Um, they walked out together famously for first on the 16th of June 1904. They had tried to meet two days earlier, but it didn't work out. Nora was probably busy at work. She worked in Finn's Hotel just there off Nassau Street. This is called Muglands. We walk along by the Liffey as far as Ring's End. The river smells like a piss pot, spilling its muck to the sea. We stop by a wall, Jim in his sailor's cap, looking like a Swede, me in my wide brimmed straw, trying to throw the provinces off me. Out there are the mugglin's rocks, Jim says, pointing out to sea. They have the shape of a woman lying on her back. His look to me is sly, to see if I've taken his meaning. I have, and our two mouths crash together and it's all swollen tongues and drippy spit and our front's pressed hard and a tight-bunched feeling between my legs. His hands travel over my bodice and squeeze, making me gasp. Oh, Jim, is all I can manage to say, and I step away from him. "'You have no natural shame, Nora,' he says. "'And he's coming at me now with his thing out of his trousers and in his hand, "'that one-eyed manine he's no doubt very fond of. "'It looks, I think, like a plum dressed in a snug coat. "'No natural shame,' I say. "'Don't be annoying me. "'Do you think because I'm a woman that I should feel nothing, "'want nothing, know nothing?' "'But I dip my nose to his neck for a second, "'the better to breathe his stale porter, lemon-soap smell.' span new to me. Jim squints and smiles. I kneel on the ground before him, my face before his tender manine, glance up at him. He drops his head, the better to see my mouth close over it. The taste is of salt and heat. The feeling is thick and animal. I suck, but only for a spell, then I draw back and peck the length of it with my lips. I stand up. There, I say, there's a kiss as shameful as Judas's, and don't tell me it isn't exactly what you wanted, Jim Joyce. A groan. He wants that bit more, of course. But that might be enough for today, our first time to walk out together. We kiss again, and he he lingers in my mouth, wanting to enjoy the taste of himself on my tongue. His paws travel over me front and back. Oh, but he's relentless. So I unbutton him. Put my hand into his drawers and wrap cool fingers around his heat. A gasp. I work him slow, slow, fast until he's pleasured. Until my fist is warm and wet from him. You've made a man of me today, Nora, Jim says. A coddled whisper. And I smile. It's rare to have a fellow say such a thing and I feel a small bit of power rise up through me, a small bit of joy. I wipe myself with my handkerchief and Jim fixes his clothes. I hold out my hand, and Jim takes it, and together we walk on.
1: Thank you. It's a brilliant opening, um, really startling as well, because it brings so much together: the the myth of Bloomsday, which, as you say, is sort of romanticised sometimes in in that short, phrase, cursory phrase, the the love story of. James Joyce and, and and Nora Barnacle because there's so much more at stake and you also establish her voice. And it's a day we know about, but we don't know as well. So it's the, the whole mystery of what a biographical novel can do. So I'd like just to begin with the early beginnings and um, ask you about what attracted you to the, the figure of Nora Barnacle as a subject.
0: I think like all these things, when you start a project like this, it's sort of a few things sort of rise up and crash together and refuse to let you not notice them. So um, I suppose, it, firstly, in my teens, I had read Brenda Maddox's biography of Nora and fell in love with Nora. Then came the beautiful film by Pat Murphy and Jerry Stembridge. Thoroughly enjoyed that thought Susan Lynch was an astonishing Nora. She was perfect, sensual and, you know, capable of great emotion and all of that. Um, I was, I had adopted a cat shortly before I started this, I had adopted a cat and called her Nora Barnacle. I live in Galway. I'm from Dublin. (laughs) And then I was studying Italian by night in NUI Galway. And one of my essays was to write a, write an essay about Joyce's time in Trieste and I wrote one about his friendship with Italo Svevo, the Italian writer. And all the time I was doing the research for that, I was back inside my Maddox and my Elman and I thought, wow, okay, what's Nora doing over there? I'm interested, more interested in what Nora's doing. And it occurred yes. to me to write a short story about her. Um, and this sometimes happens to me. I write something short, like a poem or a flash fiction or a story and then i find okay i'm not finished with this subject okay. so nora just whatever communion i had with her writing the story didn't want to leave me and i thought could i write a novel and of course taken on joyce feels audacious it feels big i had already taken on emily dickinson and i know how protective the dickinson scholars are yes. and aware of her and i feared i suppose the same thing about joyce but then Once again, like these projects, once they take hold of you, there's sort of no getting away from them. You don't want to get away. You start your research and the excitement begins. And for me, that novel excitement, that first bit of excitement is really important and it's what launches the project into reality. Mm -hmm. And so I started to get really excited about, so the story ends when they step on the boat. Yes. and I started to get excited to travel with them to Zurich, Pola, Trieste, Paris and, and all the rest of it, you know. And so and so it began um, yeah. from those bits of kind of things in the ether that were maybe waiting to come together to push me forward into this.
1: I love how you describe the, the evolution of, of your interests because that's really communicated in, in the novel, just the sense of a character who gets a hold of us that you're getting under her skin but she gets under the skin of the reader and progressively so as the the novel moves on there's a kind of evolution I I really felt in my interest in her as as the novel grew and, and grew I'd like to talk next a little bit about research it's sort of one of those bugbear aspects of biofictions and how the factual and sources and research fit in so a few questions here how did you go about researching the the novel you've mentioned some things of course already and then what does a writer do with research because it must it must become a burden as well at some point when when you want when you move into composing the novel and and drafting it you know where does the research go or do you really just have to set it aside
0: yeah i suppose i work differently to some other historical or biofictional writers in that i do a bit of appetite wetting research. So I reread uh, Nora by Maddox um, and then I drip feed. So I have the arc of the story in my head. I know what it is. And then I drip feed the other research to myself as I go along. So, for example, I read a lot of the friends testimonies, people like um, um, Marianne Pory Column, Frank Budgeon, the artist, who was a friend of theirs. So to see what they had to say. Obviously, I read the letters that Elman collected. Yeah. Um, I used any online resource I could find and then a lot of biographies. So I read as many biographies as I could stomach in a sense, but I read them as I wrote. So say I'm I'm newly in Trieste, I write the scene as I imagine it and then I read the research to make sure I have it right because there is controversy about biofiction. Some people want it to be completely true, but it can't be because biofiction is an act of embodiment and for me an act of empathy. I don't spend time with people that I don't like in this way because it takes me about two years to write a novel. So for me it's about, I have this theory about that there's sort of people who festoon as biofictional writers and people who are faithful. And I fall somewhere between the two. I'm quite faithful. So I'm sort of wedded to the to the um, chronology of people's lives. And I'm wedded to the facts of their lives. But I'm also in the business of providing an interior life for these yes. characters. And so I am festooning as well. Yes. But I tend not to, I don't go too far off piste in the sense that I read a novel about Emily Dickinson after I had written mine and she was out in taverns drinking. Now, I know for a fact she didn't do that, so it wouldn't be something that would interest me, you know, to have Nora do something completely out of character as I see it. I wouldn't have her go off and have an extramarital affair because I know she didn't. She was very against that. And so I don't festoon in that way. My, um, I, I want to create probable believable scenes in the novel, whereby I think, how would Nora have felt about this situation, say when Giorgio was having an affair with a married woman? Nora, by all accounts, was very annoyed about this and shunned Helen for a good while. And then Helen was let into the fold. So I had to sit and think, how would this And Nora is a curious mix of conservative and what we'd see as maverick. Um, By the time they were in Paris and Giorgio was having this affair, Nora and James Joyce were quite bourgeois. They were quite settled in themselves in their 40s. They weren't going around with the lost generation having parties madly and that sort of thing. They were quite, you know, square, I suppose. Um, And they had quite a square Catholic reaction to Joyce or to Giorgio Joyce's affair. And so I sit and think about Nora and what would she have said? What would? How would she have felt about it? Yeah. She felt maybe it reflected badly on her and Jim as parents. Maybe she was embarrassed that someone at home might find out. All of that sort of stuff. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to make the scenes where someone is reacting to the things we know about. Yes.
1: yes actually uh, (coughs) borrowing down a little bit more into some of the things you've you've just said and and you've wonderfully characterised all of the the different facets of um, biographical uh, fictions that are exploratory that are not fixed, and it's even said about biographies. Hermione Lee says a biographer makes up their subject and makes them over as well. So there's invention even in biography, let alone a biographical fiction. But anyway, let's uh, thinking a little bit further about how to create Nora as a fictional figure. Brenda Maddox in the the preface to her biography has the wonderful comment that she started off liking Nora, and so she puts it in this kind of not quite lukewarm way. But you know, matter of fact, but says she finished her biography in awe of her. And I think you bring your readers on a particular kind of journey with Nora in the novel um, because of your characterization of her um, and because of the way in which you give her a voice and interiorize her, um, precisely in the way that you were talking about um, just now, in the ongoing arguments with Giorgio um, about his his, his affair. Um, But it's particularly the idiom that you give, Nora, that's striking, I think, from the word go, from that first chapter that you read for us. So how did you go about creating that voice and avoiding... The, the the risk either of overquoting referencing Joyce or creating a stage Irish woman or someone, you know, a Galway girl or whatever. She needs to be something bigger than that and and different to grab hold of the reader.
0: That's it. You have to find the tone, I think that yeah. works. And um yeah, there is that stage Irishy danger. I mean people do often stage Irishy. Some of my neighbours at home in Galway have this wonderful way of speaking. But when you put that on the page, it doesn't come across so well. Yes. So you have to find something that reflects reality, but that is a little bit more balanced. And then we know Nora left school at 12, was not interested in high literature, loved her Penny Dreadfuls and her Daily Mail. Yes. So she's not going to speak like an intellectual either. So you're trying to find a voice that might have worked. So when I started writing this, I think I was 23 years living in Galway. Mm-hmm. So I would mind the phrases of my Galway friends, uh, particularly Galway city people. I would listen to their vocabulary and, yeah. you know, ask them actually, you know, so there's a phrase, Galway people say, oh, she's an awful ringer, you know, and ask them, what does that mean? And and would it have been about maybe a hundred years ago? This kind of thing. Uh, span new is a Galway phrase that means brand new that I had never heard before I lived in Galway. And so you co-opt those things in to give authenticity. And luckily, I'm edited first in the States. My book is sold first in the States and then comes over here. My American editor was very open to all of this Hiberno English, which is not always the case um, with editors, but she was very open to it and didn't quiz me on it at all. She was very accepting. So that was wonderful. I didn't have to dilute the language, you know, for some imagined audience that doesn't understand things. So that was great. I suppose you can't really get off the ground with a piece like this until you have the tone. It's like a voice in your ear. And I love first-person narratives. I love their sort of necessary impediments. You only have one point of view. Um, I actually find third-person point of view a little trickier. So I love this business of embodying the character, inhabiting them, and in a sense, becoming them. And then hoping that when the reader comes to it, that the story and the voice flows around the reader so much that she feels, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) that she herself is Nora. Yes. Yeah. Um, Very enjoyable, actually, as a thing to do to embody somebody else and, and try and become them on the page.
1: Yeah, and it it makes Nora distinctive, but also you you get a sense of her presence and agency as well because that distinctive voice that you give her then also colours the very the intimate private conversation between Jim and Nora in in the novel, and you don't feel it's been imposed by Joyce the writer on her. In fact, that is coming emanating much more from her and to him the the, the goose scene uh, which you use wonderfully the their endearments to each other, but also how they quarrel with each other in the in the course of the of, of the novel, that she colours his language as much as he's creating her as a as a character or whatever.
0: Yeah, because what a thrill for him to come across this exotic Galway woman with this <laughs> mouthful yes. of stories that she and of course, you know, my voice for Nora is partly based on Molly Bloom's soliloquies and Nora's own letters which are punctuation free and where she's quite self-effacing and funny when you read her own letters there's not a lot of them extant but yeah so the voice is based on all those different things and then it's you kind of take it to yourself. I didn't want her to sound too much like Molly Bloom. Yes. Though I love a lot of Molly's expressions because then she'd be like a pastiche or something. And Joyce himself admitted Molly is is an amalgam of people. She's not one person, though I am absolutely sure a lot of her phrases are Nora's, you know. Um, Molly's obsession with comparing people she doesn't like to cabbages. You know, she says boiling wouldn't know poetry from a cabbage, and then I think it's um, Josie. She says the white owl habit cabbage head hair, and or something like that. You know, so I'd say a lot of what uh, Joyce used for that and in Exiles and stuff like that is based on Nora. Yes.
1: Yeah, yes. I'd like to talk to you next about the the structure of the story, um, the overall structure, as as well as uh, the way in which you modulate the the chapters, which I think is very um, particular. Uh, when at what point in in composition did you decide on the arc of the narrative? You more or less give us Nora's full life, so it's not a, a cross section of of her life. Then you modulate the chapters um, as the novel goes on and devote more and less time to different phases of their life which endows the novel i think with a very particular rhythm um, they they there are shorter chapters followed by longer more immersive ones so you move in and out of some kind of fluctuating set of circumstances because i think a lot of the novel actually is about conflict it's not at all static it keeps it keeps us moving and thinking wondering about nora as a figure not at all presuming, oh no, I know what she's about or anything like that. Um, the the puzzles remain to, to the very end. So first, the, the arc of the story. Yeah, so I suppose I wanted to follow the chronology
0: and yes. then um, I had envisioned it as writing it as a novel in flash fiction. So uh, discrete pieces. So each chapter I wanted to be able to stand alone. And then this was my initial idea. In fact, I wanted to write a novella, which is ludicrous when you think about it now. But I, that idea fell away quite quickly because I realized pieces of this are larger than other pieces. So Trieste is an enormous piece. That was their foundation and their yes. forming. Yes. It was where their love cemented itself, and it was also where the children were born, where they became parents, where he realised fully he wanted to be the whole artist, that teaching outside of, you know, art was not of interest to him. Earning money outside of art from teaching is what I mean. so really, I had to devote a lot of time to Trieste and I was very happy to do that. And when my agent read a draft, she, was, oh, she kept asking me "When, as I was writing, where are you now? And she was dying for me to get to Paris because, you know, I think she thought that, oh, well, there they will be with the Hemingways and the, you know, whoever, yes. uh, Gertrude Steins and all these people. Um, but for me, it was important to keep them in Trieste I, and, and yeah. write that fully. You know, so that the person sees how they grew as a couple, how poverty affected them. I I completely agree, yes,
1: and Pola, Trieste and little bits of Zurich because um, those cities are less known to people. Joyceans, of course, know of them and a little about them, but not, not enough. Um, so it is a much more enigmatic aspect of them, them coming together. And it's the beginnings of the whole story as well. And way, the most interesting part, because yes. he's not famous then and so
0: they're yes. kind of left alone no, and then sure. yes. fame brings its problems and money brings its problems
1: to them. Because and the children are born, she's becoming a mother during that, that phase as well, learning Italian, everything is happening. Exactly,
0: yeah. And then
1: um, I
0: suppose... Structure-wise, you don't want to linger too long over parts that you feel are... Like, I had a lot of stuff in that was subsequently taken out by my editor. So I did have the whole piece where he put Nora in the sing play in Zurich and all of that. But it was felt it wasn't moving them along quick enough. And so certain things have to come out. Yes, you know. So, yeah. but yeah, structure is something I, enjoy. I like. Short chapters as a reader, and I like them as a writer. And I think yes. they give the reader a break where they can breathe and think. You know, much the way you consume a short story. I think I like yeah. my chapters to be consumed like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's a very distinctive facet of uh, reading the novel. So I think that the rhythm doesn't work work very well. I just next like to. Uh, ask you to talk about the other biofictions that you've written which are quite different and obviously very different subjects as well Uh, the Miss Emily novel which looks at Emily Dickinson but from an oblique point of view through an Irish maidservant in her house and Becoming Belle which tells a very different story of an Irish artiste a vaudeville performer and her rise to fame and the difficulties with, with her marriage so two very different scenarios And then we have now have Nora from you alongside those two novels. Did all three novels present you with certain different kinds of predicaments that you needed to resolve, as it were, as as uh, an author of these biographical novels?
0: Yeah, so I didn't want to write a straight Emily Dickinson novel and it suited my purposes to bring an Irish maid in. Emily had had Irish maids, three that we know of. And so I invented a maid because I had written a book about a German artist and it had not gotten off the ground for me in the way that I wanted it to. I think I over-researched it. I was too wedded to the facts. So I thought, let me give myself a solid fictional element to this Emily Dickinson novel so that I have some freedoms. Um, And so the Emily parts. It's, it's really set in 1866, which is yes. a kind of a year that it was the year she really retreated from the world, took on wearing the white wrapper and, you know, was writing in earnest because she had time because she wasn't out and about <laughs> socialising and what have you. Um, and so they didn't have a maid that year as it happened. And so I could easily slot my Ada Concanon in there into the Dickinson household uh, and and have her do the work. So that one's a dual narrative. One chapter is in Emily's voice, one is in Ada's voice. So again, you have chiming voices and it's to show how, again, So called extraordinary people like James Joyce and Emily Dickinson have no aversion to ordinary people. In fact, they value them highly. And so it's about, that novel is about cross-general, cross-generational friendship. Mm -hmm. Emily's 36. She would be considered an old maid at that point in that time. And Ada is fresh off the boat from Ireland, a willing emigrant. She's 18 or 19, I think, when she lands in the house. And so they have this lovely kitchen friendship because Emily Dickinson was a baker. And that was my way into the book, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like baking. And so I started baking Emily's recipes and mm-hmm. always loved her poetry because I was a, a teenage goth. <laughs> so we always loved Emily's work. Um, and so, yeah, there, all these things just kind of come together and push you into doing something. Yeah. And then Belle, obviously a very different yeah because she's not well known outside of maybe London theater circles maybe she might be a little bit known. She married into the Irish aristocracy and then that aristocratic family basically fell and left Ireland. Now the aristocracy was doomed at that point anyway in Ireland, but um, it was <clears throat> seen as a very bad marriage by the the sitting Earl. his son the Viscount made this you know improbable marriage that he disapproved of. And so essentially it's a court case novel. It's about how the father tries to get between the son and the wife and fails. Um, enormously enjoyable to research and lots of freedom because there isn't a great paper trail apart from the court case. Yeah. So I had a lot of um, freedom there to invent what Belle might have been feeling about her situation. You know, there was always the, the accusation that she was a gold digger. She was an unwed mother who marries this aristocrat. In actual fact, they went on to have five or six more children and had a very happy marriage until her early death. So the marriage worked out.
1: Um, the Clancartys in Ireland did not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you p- paint a fascinating picture of the, d- the different constraints and then opportunities that different subjects um put forward for you as 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 a, as an author I'd like to move next to the subtitle that you mentioned that you didn't choose for your novel of the "A love story of Nora Barnacle and and James Joyce I think um, Brenda Maddox, Maddox's biography also had a similar kind of subtitle imposed on it not chosen by her it was something like the real story of yes. Molly bloom or something yes. like that the it's story
0: like the Publishers want to they cover fasten something oh that's it they had to get James Joyce shoehorned into my title somehow. So (laughs) that's how they did it.
1: (laughs) But of course, this is a love story. It's a story of passion as as is self-evident from from the first chapter. But it's much more complicated um, than that. And I think what you draw out, one of the things you draw out for me most fully uh, in the novel is the everyday, but everyday strife and tension, quarrels, all the predicaments from Nora's point of view, uh, in all the phases of their life, it's unrelenting, but especially in the early years, those years that you mentioned, that you concentrate on on Trieste. I guess one of the kind of takes on Nora and James Joyce as a couple is that they're complementary, that they're opposites, and sort of that this tension or conflict between them was sort of predestined always um, to happen. And each of them, at various moments, did think of leaving the other. Um, And in a way, I think people looking at it from the outside console themselves with this idea of an enduring romance. So where do you think the truth lies or can we ever know?
0: Yeah, I think it's somewhere in between. I mean, every marriage is full of compromises. And I think Nora had firmly made her bed when she left Ireland eloping with James Joyce unmarried. Um, and then very quickly became pregnant with her first child. And so they left Ireland to escape the constraints of ordinary life and ended up in a very ordinary life, in a sense, in Trieste, where the father goes out to work to earn the money and the mother stays at home minding the children and, as it happens, taking in laundry, in Nora's case. Um, I think they were each other's yin and yang. She was a very naturally optimistic, pragmatic, down-to-earth person, but also a sort of an Edwardian maverick. You know, she would have been expected if she was going to emigrate to go to England or to America. She would have been expected to marry a practicing Catholic and have a lot of babies. So she did what was not expected of her by going to Europe, by being with this very educated man, though, Nora liked educated men. The boyfriends we know that she had were all uh, school teachers, um, university students and that. So she she wasn't averse to an educated tone when she heard one. I'm sure she was as delighted as he was on Nassau Street that day when they met each other. So Joyce really was this sort of tender, empathic, sensitive, nervy, tricky individual. And she was this optimistic, naturally good-humoured person, which must be a lovely way to walk through life. And they were a lovely compliment to each other. So also the marriage strikes me as very Irish in a way. Yes. There was a lot of... um, she would scold him and she did it in front of people, which alarmed sometimes their American friends in Paris. They didn't quite understand, but it's actually a very Irish way to, to conduct true. a marriage. Yes. You know? yeah. And I love that about them. Um, yeah. He, Stanny, his brother, criticized Nora and Joyce jumped to her defense and said, there's more nobility in her than there is in me. You know, yeah. don't be so quick to downgrade her because of her being working class and uneducated in the sense that most Irish people were uneducated that they left school. Do you think
1: there was a class divide between each
0: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, his family were the middle classes, the fallen genteel as such. They were living in absolute squalor and dire poverty by the end. Um, Their father was really incompetent as a father and as a provider Um, And passed on some of those traits to James, even though he disdained that kind of behaviour. He almost became his father with the heavy drinking and the endless moving house, which is very disruptive for a family. Um, Nora had been brought up by her granny. She was fostered out, a very common custom, as we know, in Ireland, and had quite a nice life with her granny. Her seven siblings were at home in a small house, a one-bedroom house with her mother. So... You know, yeah, there, she was definitely from the working classes. Her father was a baker. He lost his bakery through drink. So they had stuff in common. They had drinking fathers. They were both from port towns. They were city people, you know. Yes. And it's, so it's no wonder they went to Trieste in the end or ended up in Trieste in the end and Paris after that. Though Nora did want to try London, I think probably because it was English speaking and she might have found more comfort yes in that
1: yeah they were changing language all the time let's not forget yeah Yeah. um yeah actually that leads me to uh, the next question I wanted to ask in that you really underscore the just the poignancy of her situation that okay she goes away with with Joyce and in fact she almost instigates that move more than he does to to begin with but she's absolutely at his mercy she's isolated with him uh, when they get to Trieste, and it's it's a continuing aspect of her life all the way through into the Paris years um, trying to find, you know, trying to locate people she can talk to who are her friends, not not his, and part of the literary circles around him. But particularly in the Pola Trieste years, you really draw out how alone she is. Or when they're in Rome, she sits on a, on the rooftop with the baby Georgia, just looking at the, the roofs of Paris. Jo- uh, Joyce has these long, long working days, so she her- she hardly sees them. So just the isolation of of, yeah. of this woman is, and, and is that's really brought home.
0: Yeah, that's that's from facts she did actually really suffer from loneliness he had very long hours in Rome he was gone like for 10 hours a day or something working Um, a lot of what I put into Joyce's mouth actually comes from things he he said in letters thank goodness he was a great letter writer and he wrote to Stanny who was really his whetstone and his sounding board and his money provider poor Stanny I hate saying poor Stanny but poor (laughs) Stanny so a lot of the stuff that Joyce says comes from him so a lot of what happens is actually very factual but I, as I said yes. I, I weave it yeah. into saying she was very lonely in Rome and, and I, I, I think a lot of women at that time you know I'll talk about Irish women because they're yes, the ones was, I know about. That was
1: precisely the point I was going to make. It, was, it, it, it really gives us an insight into coupledom and marriage in in, in the period and how the dynamics uh, worked. Because just women got abandoned in in these relations, and and Joyce keeps drinking night after night, leaves leaves her at home. Of course, they socialize a lot together as well. Yeah,
0: the bargain that she entered into, she probably knew what it was. Yeah. she maybe didn't know he drank quite as much as he he ended up drinking. Mm. And like, isn't it awful really that he did that to her having witnessed his father do it to his mother and having really hated it yes. and, and tried very hard to escape it and did escape it to repeat that seems like an awful insult
1: to her yeah it seems to have been just part of an untamable anarchic part of him um, moving on next to the way in which Nora changes, though, as well that she she goes abroad uh, as as you say already uh, as this uh, very strong-minded, positive uh, young young girl. Um, but yet she does have have to change, learn different languages, immerse herself in, in different cultures. Elman has um, this very nice comment um, about Joyce after he wrote his historic letter to Henrik Ibsen, the Norwegian playwright, that beforehand Joyce was an Irishman and after he was European. It's a very kind of, um, male assessment though of how you become something it's like it's an instantaneous entitlement it can just come about like that but you show how Nora learns to be European as well how she changes in in many different ways so um, I would just like next to ask you about that aspect of Nora Um, her metamorphosis you talk about later about Joyce and Nora being very bourgeois figures in London but they also take on other aspects of Europeanness
0: yeah and I thought that was depicted beautifully in Pat Murphy's film when we see Nora come back to Galway and she's wearing this white outfit and this enormous hat. They were great. They loved style, the two of them. And when they did start getting money from the likes of Harriet Weaver, they did spend a lot on clothing. And you can see it in the children as well. They were impeccably dressed always. Yes. Um, And that beautiful visual representation of it coming into kind of cold, dark, rainy Galway. There's this woman with this enormous, you know, European look about her, uh, which was very deliberate because they were very conscious of their clothes and you find that in their letters and stuff that... They didn't like looking shabby. They liked looking smart. Um, So I wanted to bring that into the novel as well, that by the time Nora did come back uh, to visit Galway, they came for an extended holiday in 1912. um, She had become a very, very different person to the person she was. She was now bilingual. She spoke Italian at home with her family. She dressed for the climate that she now lived in, which was the absolute opposite to um, dark, rainy Galway. It was bright, sunny Trieste. Um, Her food even. So it took them a while to get used to the food in Italy. Well, Austria as it was, Austro-Hungary. But then, of course, your tastes become that. But then her children, when they came to Galway refused to eat her mother's food, which was terribly embarrassing. And Nora had to bring them to a cafe every day to eat. And then they started saying, we don't want to go into the house. It smells of cabbage. And, you know, she sort of must have realized these children have very bad manners Mm. and are not Irish in the sense that I was Irish, you know. So, yeah, it's an interesting metamorphosis to watch, you know, and you can't go through every minute of their time in Trieste. But obviously the people they're dealing with, Their friends are Italian, their friends are from England, they're from different places. There's a German woman working with Jim as well. So they have this suddenly cosmopolitan set. The unfortunate thing for them is because Jim insists on moving and following his sort of trail of ambition that their friend group changes very often. His other problem is, He sees everybody as a potential betrayer. And if they don't betray him, he'll find a reason to say that they did, including Beach, Weaver, all of these people who were so incredibly generous to this family as a foursome. Um, Joyce found ways to be cranky with them or fall out with them or whatever, you know. He did come back around often and praised people like Beach, but he did manage to get cranky with her over... Yes. perceived royalties that weren't given to him, even though yeah. ridiculously he had 66% yeah. of the profits yeah. of Ulysses and used the till at Shakespeare and Co. as a kind of a, I don't know, petty cash box.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And there were similar issues with Harriet Weaver, so tensions always entered into tensions the, the entered close like, relations that he
0: had. Honestly, yeah. the woman gave them the equivalent of 1.5 million euro in today's money. Yes.
1: Yes. Inheritance yeah, that she yeah, got yeah, straight to Joyce. Yeah, she's and a he, remarkable figure. And
0: minded Lucia for them when Lucia yes, was ill. Yeah,
1: continuously mm-hmm. until the very end of her life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, moving on to uh, another subject matter that is central, of course, if um, people know Ulysses and know about jo- Joyce's life. Um, Joyce is a revolutionary writer for all kinds of reasons. He reinvents the short story form, the novel form, but he's also revolutionary because of his subject matter. And in fact, That uh, was how he was received in the first instance. Ulysses was seen as this scandalous novel, um, pornographic and so on. Um, So as an author broaching the life of Nora and James Joyce, you can't avoid the topic of sexuality. We know it's central. Um, This is not just a love story and and a romance. It's a very sexual, passionate um, relationship, and you, you Broach, uh, breach these taboos yourself from from the, your very daring op- opening chapter and um, supplying some of that information that we surmise about um, the the first date or the, the first very uh, long date that Nora and Joyce have um, together. And another scandalous aspect of the exchange um, between Nora and Joyce, but her letters, of course, are lost, are the so-called dirty letters from 1909, which go out of uh, another... Um, betrayal, a dispute between them, which hinges on on jealousy. Nora's um, former lovers, all of whom Joyce keeps uh, rehearsing in his mind and bringing back to life again. And um, the letters make for very uncomfortable reading. They were sort of censored or at least held back by Richard Ellman for, for a good bit because of their sadomasochistic elements. You brilliantly supply Nora's letters that we we don't know, um, but you also take us through all of the ups and downs of that very stormy uh, summer um, and the exchanges and breakdowns in communication between them. So could you comment a little further on that because you're entering into very uncomfortable uh, territory here. Um, Interesting, of course, but uh, it, it moves us away from any kind of... Uh, easy romanticized view of Nora and James Joyce as as a couple.
0: Yeah, I think the erotic letters and all of the stuff that's gathered around that is something you can't ignore when you write a book like this. And I was absolutely determined to get them in. I had a lot more of them in and I actually rewrote Joyce's because I was worried about copyright stuff. Yes, Uh, Stephen Joyce was still alive at the time. And I know the letters were first published in I think 1975 so I was worried about copyright so yes. I really very closely mimicked his letters but you can read the real ones online anyway and then I used his as a sort of a call and response guide to compose Nora's to imagine what she might have been saying to him yes. to um yeah. incite some of the stuff yeah. now I think the coprophilic stuff was Joyce's own uh, predilection and I'm not sure that Nora was too enamoured of it. Like Mm. when he asked her to defecate in front of him, which she complied with, she then couldn't look him in the eye. She was so ashamed. And he says that in one of the letters to her. Um, We obviously should never have been able to read these letters. I can
1: totally
0: understand Stephen Joyce's and any of the other relatives' annoyance about this. Who would want to read their these kind of letters belonging to someone so yeah. closely related to
1: them—it's—it's. It's yeah. But when they're there, you can't—you literally can't. Ignore yes, them. and at the same time, it's somehow in keeping with everything we know about Joyce as a writer, and and indeed as as a person. There were no taboos for him. He uh, wrote roughshod over everything. You know, religion, political beliefs. Um, sexual ones, friendships, he he was going to query every aspect of life. So I suppose in some ways they do fit into um, this very uncomfortable story of of these two people. And you of course show how it is a very tricky set of negotiations that she's in a way complying with what he wants from her, um, writes back to make it up in the language that he has sort of imposed on her, but disputes it as well. So she's not just taking it all on on well, board.
0: Well, that's the thing as well, though, isn't it? Like, I mean, sex is just part of life. John Quinn said about portrait his book is just life. And you could say the yes. same of Ulysses. It's yes. life. It's how do yeah. you live a life? What is important in a life? Yeah. What are the elements we're all obsessed with? And for me, and this is, well, obviously there was no sex in Emily Dickinson, but I mean, it, all of the books I write and my short stories as well, I don't shy away from the sensuous aspects because they're such a huge part of our lives. And I don't see, there's no reason nowadays in fiction not to include them. We can, yes. and so therefore we should. I mean, Ulysses went through such a, a terrible trajectory of trying to be published, you know, uh, with all of the stuff in the States
1: and the UK. Nonetheless, I think it still takes courage to To take all this on on board and to to broach it once again as as an author yourself who brings other interests and and different value systems to to the story of of Nora and Joyce. Um, I'd like to talk next about the portrait of Joyce that emerges in the course of of the the novel. Of course he's central but not. This is the story of Nora as as you said at at the very beginning and Maggie O'Farrell in The Wonderful Hamnet makes the unusual decision of not quite sidelining shakespeare but he always remains shadowy not quite named and just moves in a kind of ghostly fashion in and out of of the narrative you don't do that so in fact you make things even more difficult for yourself because joyce is looked at uh, we see him from the point of view of nora but he talks in in propria persona as well so he he speaks in 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 the first person so we've we've different facets of joyce being bounced off against each other and we're we're always trying to make up our minds about him as a figure and a character as well um so what's your take on him as a figure so when I started I didn't want him to overshadow it the whole
0: point of this was to stop having Nora as sort of a page blot or a side smudge to the Joyce (laughs) you know to bring her forward and show how important she was to him getting the work done um and for Nora, he is the father of her children, he's her life partner, he's the person that earns the money. Um, and so he has to be there, they hardly ever were apart from each other and as we see when they were apart from each other they corresponded hugely, there could be two letters a day. And so there isn't a way to write about Nora in a sense and not have Jim fully present. I had several scenes, in fact, where Nora was on her own. So I had one shopping scene where she goes shopping in Trieste by herself and has an encounter. And then I had another scene where she was up on the so with Lucia as a baby, strapped to her. She goes walking by herself. And interestingly, my editor cut both those scenes And I kind of tried to fight for them and say, well, I think it's important to see Nora by herself, having agency, doing things alone, you know, passing the Bechdel test where she's not always in conversation with Jim or some other man. But no, it was felt that they weren't moving the narrative along. I felt that they added power to her as an individual doing her own thing, which she often did, obviously, because he was out either working during the day when they're in Trieste and drinking at night with sailors and so yeah. on. I'm know? just
1: going to read a comment. And this is uh, Nora's interiorised thoughts about about Joyce late, late in the novel. Jim Joyce is my love, but he's also a bother to my heart and a sore conundrum to my mind. I don't think the day will come when he'll grow to be the man he should be.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think maybe someone who has problems with alcohol and he definitely someone who drinks every single day has a problem with alcohol you know he used it to be gregarious he used it as maybe a a, what would you say a gramophone horn or something he used it to be able to socialize because he found people tricky we know all of this so to be married to someone like that must be really really difficult and she had to put up with that you know, right to the end, like, you know, and to watch him in a sense, not take heed of the doctors when it came to drinking, that it was hurting both his stomach and his eyes, which were his two great sites of uh, pain. And he was in dreadful pain a lot of the time. And she, she nursed him through that. She clearly had the patience of 10 saints. She really was extraordinary, had some sort of extraordinary inner strength that kept her and obviously love, you know, obviously great regard for him, not as... Joyce, the famous
1: and wonderful writer that we all revere, but Joyce the man. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, but that's really what you do communicate. Um, you've you've spoken very eloquently, I think, at the launch of 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 Nora, um, the uh, virtual launch here in Molly, about the fact that Nora really doesn't take on the role of the literary wife or a lady of letters, is the phrase that she uses about Harriet Weaver uh, in in the novel. And could you comment a bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so I feel Nora
0: was resolutely herself. She was not into literature. She liked what she liked. And Kybird said about Molly Bloom, she wasn't easily mastered by outside forces. And I think you could say the exact same of Nora. When Jim did try and get her to write the letters, he was frustrated with her lack of capitalization and full stops and the whole lot. And it was a project not worth pursuing. She didn't want to do it. She didn't have skills in that direction. Her skills were where she had them. And she knew that as his, you know, constant companion, minder, feeder, the person who dragged him home from the bistro when he had drank t- too much. There's there's accounts of her shoving him into taxis and him screaming, will I ever be free of this? You know, like drunk out of his head. Um, so she didn't see the need to be that person. But also James Joyce was a person who was a great man for um, delegating and recruiting helpers. And so yes. when... The children were old enough, they were often sent on errands to Shakespeare and co and what have you. He had Helen Fleischman, Giorgio's wife, typing for him. Anyone he knew who he thought he could do something for him, he would have them do it. And he just knew, obviously from experience, that Nora was not the person to do that. And actually some of the uh, expat American literary crew in Paris sort of disdained Nora for this. Uh, they didn't see why she wasn't like some sort of Vera Nabokov figure who was doing all the stuff in the background. Yeah. They wanted her to be that, and she most certainly wasn't. I think the, I think there was often cultural misunderstanding about the Joyce's and the way they conducted their marriage uh-huh. from yes. the Americans, yeah. um, and they would have seen that that was her duty, whereas she didn't see it as that at all. Uh, <laughs> she knew what she was yeah. and who she was, um, and, and that it, it worked for them.
1: Um, another problematic facet of the, the life of the Joyces, but particularly Nora herself, is her relationship with Lucia, her daughter, and Lucia's mental health problems and how they... Skew and color Nora's relationship with with Lucia. Often um, biographical summations of Nora are quite judgmental and moralistic. On on that score, Nora is just simply seen as as a, a bad mother who somehow failed Lucia. You bring out the complexity of the the relationship again, very much through the interiorized view of Nora, but bouncing it off, of course, the the, the very spiky character of Lucia and um, the obstreperous, unmanageable. Um, daughter who's um, such a tragic figure um, as well as an independent and important figure in her own right. Yeah and I think it is very complex so Lucia was diagnosed with
0: several things but one of the things was hebephrenic schizophrenia which is characterised by emotionless behaviour incongruous and silly behaviour and we've evidence of Lucia acting in all of these ways. She also had catatonia, she suffered from hallucinations Uh, and deterioration of intellect is another um, facet of that. Uh, She was violent. She was prone to truancy. She was sexually promiscuous. So Nora had her care mostly because Jim was writing or drinking. And this was not an easy person to deal with. So as parents, they were extremely worried. Uh, They were worried about Lucia herself and being a danger to herself. Jim was, Joyce was a bit worried about his reputation, particularly when Lucia was at home in Bray um, with her cousins, that people would say, oh, Joyce's daughter is mad and it would reflect badly on him. Giorgio was the first person to actually commit Lucia, so he started a chain of committals and uh, uses of the, what do you call that thing, the, the straitjacket. jacket. But Lucia would set fires, for example, in the house in Bray. She would paint the rooms black. She would naked sea swim. Like this is the nineteen twenties. This was all highly unusual, provocative behaviour. Lived on a damp a, <laughs> a diet rather of champagne, cigarettes, and fruit. So she was pretty out of control. And for Nora to try and deal with that, and to try and accept that this, you know, to try and parse out was this just bad behaviour or was there something wrong with her? And Nora came to the conclusion that there was something wrong with her. There was mental illness in her own family. Uh, Her sister, Dilly, was incarcerated in Balnaslow in the asylum there for a while. And there was mental illness on Joyce's side as well. And I suppose... There is this thing that people think it runs in families. Regardless of any of that, Lucia was not well and she was a danger to herself. And what does a mother do? A mother who loves her child, and she did love her child, she tries to help her. Joyce insisted on bringing her around 20 different doctors and yes. from Switzerland to France to England to Ireland, obviously not wanting to believe that Lucia was as ill as she was, and hoping somehow for a cure, when it became clear, I think, to everyone around him, and he says this in a letter, everyone else says she's mad, but he was still holding out. So I think there was a lot of anxiety, sadness, fear around that. But I refuse to accept this villainous portrait of Nora. I don't find the evidence of it in anything really apart from her impatience at times with her yes. uh, again a very Irish mother's solution to a child that's acting up is to smack them or tell them that they're driving them mad or whatever you know like Good again maybe there were cultural uh, differences there that people were viewing Nora's motherhood through the lens of maybe wealthy people's mothering yes. or very educated people's mothering or people who had a lot of servants mothering her. you know so yeah. I think As in, we were talking earlier about the differences between fiction, biofiction, biography. To be honest, all of this is filtered to us in different ways. We come at it with our own biases and um, flavours. And so who's to know what the truth is? I think she was sick and she needed help and eventually she got that help and it was just
1: very unfortunate that she remained incarcerated in the way she did for the rest of her life. I'd like finally to ask you about the, the beautiful and very affecting ending of, of your novel, which is, was unsurprisingly on one level, ends with Nora's death, but nonetheless does catch the reader, me, at any rate, off balance. I defy anyone not not to um, be affected by the ending and, and, and to cry. Nora's on her deathbed in April 1951 in, in Zurich, and she hallucinates Joyce, and um, there is a kind of interior monologue very reminiscent of the ending of the, the dead and Anna Livia flowing out to sea at, at the end of Finnegan's Wake as well but you create a wonderful interweave of um, different points of view and different words from different from Nora from Joyce from you Nula no, uh, O'Connor the author as well um, but it Despite the fact that she's dying, it seems a happy ending. I hold out my hand and Jim takes it. I rush into his arms and feel the smother of his love. My only one, my Jim. Together we walk on.
0: She loved him so much to the end. When he was being lowered into his own grave in Zurich, um, there was a vitrine on the coffin, like a little window where the face is, which was common. And she she sang out in the graveyard, Jim, how beautiful you are. So even while he is dead and gone from her she all she can think about is how much she loves them and then her own death i wanted to bring them back together because she stayed in zurich for a few different re- reasons she was crippled with arthritis it was difficult yes. for her to travel um which is another reason she didn't see lucia who was in england um she wanted to be near james grave so she could visit it up on the hill there above zurich and the Irish government refused to repatriate Joyce's body when it, when they were asked to and she was annoyed with them so she kind of thought i'm not going back to ireland Zurich. Is, she said something to the effect of zurich is a good enough place for an old woman to be and her son giorgio was nearby and so he could take care of her she had a very um, loving relationship with giorgio it was a classic irish setup of mammy's boy and daddy's girl um, And then when I'm writing a novel like this, generally, as I'm moving towards the end, the ending will occur to me and I jot it down and I, then I I sort of, uh, I remember hearing Alistair MacLeod, the great Canadian writer saying that the ending of a story is a lighthouse toward which he travels. I don't have that generally until I'm very near the end and then the lighthouse appears and then I start to move towards it and so I'm, I'm very much bringing the thing down to the end and I do like an open hopeful end I don't want to leave people on a very bleak note I think it's very unfair to the reader and I have had a lot of comments like yours from grown men and all that they had little weeping session at the end when she's when she sees her gym again and they're reunited Like for someone like Nora, who was a kind of a, a bit of a Catholic and probably hung on to a lot yes. of bits and pieces of it, which if you've been brought up Catholic, they're very hard to throw away. She may have still believed in an afterlife. And so she may have felt, well, I'll be seeing him again now whenever yeah. I go. And yeah. so it seems to me like something she might have felt that, well, at least I'll see Jim again. You know, yeah. no matter that I'll be gone from Georgia, and won't be able to look out <laughs> for him. At least I'll see Jim kind of, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Nuala O'Connor, thank you very much for a hugely absorbing um, conversation. And to remind readers, Nora is published by um, New Ireland. And that's all for this episode of Every Life is Many Days. This podcast was produced by Benedict Schlepper Connolly and Ian Dunphy with Ian Dunphy on sound. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie.